When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Closed Captions On or Off edition. It's Wednesday, June 14th, 2023. On today's show, the film Past Lives tells the story of two childhood friends who meet in middle school, fall in love in that middle school way, and then are separated when one of them emigrates to America. It's the feature film debut of writer-director Celine Song. And then the ultimatum Queer Love It's on Netflix. It's a reality bonanza in which a wavering partner faces an ultimatum. Then both partners try new quote-unquote trial wives. Oh my. And finally, why are people reading TV as it were, leaving subtitles on even when the show's in English? We discuss an Atlantic article about the trend. I'm joined now by Dana Stevens, film critic of Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hello, Stephen. And Julia's out this week, so we have a couple people subbing in, the first of whom is Sam Adams, who's going to join us for our first segment. Sam, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. And you're joining us to discuss the movie Past Lives. It stars Greta Lee and Tao Yu as two childhood friends in Seoul, South Korea, who get separated when she moves to the United States. As young adults, they reconnect over Facebook, Skype for hours, and uh, this only serves to intensify the melancholy of what might have been. Confused, she breaks it off. Now it's another 12 years later. She's married, and her semi-imaginary, semi-real paramour is coming to visit her in New York City. This is the debut feature by Celine Song, who wrote the film as well. It's in theaters now. Let's listen to a clip. Okay, in this scene, Nora, played by Greta Lee, has just finished explaining the Korean concept of inyun, or fate, to the young man who will be her future husband, it turns out, Arthur. He's played by John Magaro. Inyun, she explains to him, is the kind of kismet that happens when two people encounter each other over multiple lifetimes, and eventually, finally, they fall in love. Let's listen to Arthur's reply. Do you believe in that? Believe what? That you and I knew each other in another life. Because we're sitting here at the same table in the same city at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wouldn't that make this India? Mm -mm. That's just something Koreans say to seduce someone. Sam, let me let me start with you. You saw this movie at Sundance when it premiered. I mean, it's a quintessential film festival darling. Uh, it seems to have transferred to release quite successfully. Every headline I read indicates a rapturous uh, experience on the part of the critic. Virtually every headline. What about what about you? Yeah, well, this is, I mean, this is a classic festival experience for me, too. At Sundance, I'm, I really just kind of lucked into it. Um, Celine Song's uh, most recent play, Endlings, happened to be the last piece of theater I saw before the pandemic. This was the first in-person Sundance uh, since the pandemic. It just felt like kismet or inyun, I guess, that I should go see this movie on a, a weekend afternoon. Um, and, if, you know, it was an A24 movie. I remember when I saw the play, they told me she was working on something for A24. And it's like, oh, that's nice. Interesting. Um, so I went into this thing and just emerged, you know, 100 minutes later, just completely blown away by this movie. Um, it's just it's really wonderful and heartfelt and lyrical, I think, particularly for um, people who are prone to regret sort of professional sad bastards, as we like to think of ourselves. Um, this just hits like right, right in the middle. Um, so yeah, just like tremendously moved by this, really uh, blown away by the performance by Greta Lee, who... Um, like most people will know from mostly kind of bit parts on shows like Russian Doll. She is the sweet birthday baby friend on that show. Sweet birthday baby! 
but really just reveals herself to be an incredibly uh, talented and uh, rich actress in this movie. Mm. Uh, Dana, what about you? Were you rapturous or... Uh, well, I mean, I've been looking forward to it since Sundance because of precisely yeah. what Sam describes. There's always that one movie that, that emerges from Sundance with a, pretty much a consensus of rapture. And with, I guess, a couple of exceptions, this was really it for this year. So this has been one of my most anticipated. Yeah, I think to me, the most impressive thing about this is that it's a playwright's first movie. It just has such a sure-footed sense of pacing and of visuals you know it's not a visually splashy movie it's basically about people talking in rooms but the way it establishes this you know pretty long stretch of time of three different 12-year spans in these people's lives is so deftly handled you know with with the camera and the editing it just feels like a film a filmmaker's film so the idea that it's a young playwright making her first movie was exciting to me also i think it's worth observing the things that this movie doesn't do. It's really a, a romance that proceeds by ellipses, you know? I mean, we, there's so much of the characters' lives that we don't see in between the time skips. And there's also so many typical beats of a movie that more or less is sort of about a romantic triangle or at least a possible romantic triangle that that we don't hit. And, uh, and I really respected that um, restraint that the movie shows. The one critique I think I would have about it, and I wonder what the two of you think about this, is because the main character, played by Greta Lee, is essentially a proxy, she's even a playwright, just like Celine Song. I mean, she really is a stand-in for Celine Song. And I think we get to know her so much better uh, in terms of the time we spend with her and the amount of disclosure about her character than we do either of the two men. I think the critique could be made that this is a little bit of a that this is a movie about propping up the experience of one person's autobiography and to some degree making the um, the other two legs of the tripod into just supports for that character's story. For me, the sort of somewhat, I don't know, sort of like almost iconic or archetypal um vision of the two men is sort of more of a feature than a bug. I mean, this is really a character who is caught up in things that could have been um, the life she could have led had her family not emigrated from Korea when she was 12. Um, so these characters are sort of imagined figures to her in some way. And I think the movie, um, without just treating them as figments of her imagination, does sort of keep us on that side of the fence where they're concerned. My worry for this movie is that many of the headlines indicate it's the best film of the year. A few even say best film of the last several years and a couple, I'm pretty sure, of the millennium. And I think the perfect place to see it is Sundance or a film festival or having heard very little about it. And then your expectations are sized only by the movie itself in some sense. And and that would be a profoundly satisfying experience. I was not at all sure I loved the film for about the first full 50 minutes. I felt that it's not just that it's sort of impressionistically drawn and um, it's that I felt scenes were over and over and over again cut off very early. It's They're oddly quick, even, even scenes that are meant to describe, you know, hours long Skype calls, which is, you know, the moment where they reconnect in their early 20s, now adults, young adults, you know, there's something about the lack of as an audience member, it's not that these characters aren't deeply drawn or portrayed deeply by the actors. It's that you yourself are not losing yourself into a scene in that deep way that makes you feel as though you are there with those people. And um, But something began to happen to me, oddly. It was... it. It's the thing that I texted a friend who had loved it after I got out was the thing about that movie, it sneaks the fuck up on you. And it, it's funny... What I found really interesting, Dana, is that there's now a lot of, maybe it's the age of social media or COVID or God knows what, but there are a lot of like counterfactual narratives, right? Like even Marvel movies and Spider-Verse, right? It's like, who would I be in a, in a parallel string theorized universe? Or, you know, even The Ultimatum, right? The reality TV show we're going to talk about. Um, this movie is such a uniquely gentle and contemplative take on what it is for regret to be part of the palette of human emotions no matter what, as opposed to a kind of fantasy projection of, you know, total fulfillment as another person. It reminded me 
less of like string theory Marvel superhero movies and more of like Jhumpa Lahiri's short stories in some sense. Like it is very much about having a life split in two by uh, emigrating. And I ended up like loving the picture. Yeah, you know, Justin Chang in the LA Times wrote that in a strange way, it's almost like this is a a very contemplative realist take on everything everywhere all at once, yeah, right? In that it's in great. that it's yeah. a, a, an Asian American immigrant story that also in a way looks at possible other lives, except here the possible other lives are not, you know, crazy psychedelic pings into different universes, but just simply what if my parents hadn't immigrated? You know, what if I had lived the life that I was born into instead of having this particular diasporic story that that she has. And I think that's beautifully handled in the film also because the film doesn't focus on it. It's something of a of a given, you know, that she has absorbed that in her life. So that, for example, I think in a lot of immigration stories where someone is either um, first generation American or immigrated with their parents, there's a lot of scenes with the parents where the parents sort of represent the old ways and the traditional world and the kid is rebelling against that. Maybe that does happen to this character. We don't know. But because we skip so many years of her life up to the point where she is a well-adjusted and completely integrated, you know, American citizen, we don't get that, I think, by now somewhat cliched push and pull between the ways of the old world and the ways of the new world. Instead, you know, she she feels comfortable. She feels American. She feels fine in her her interracial marriage with her husband until this kind of ghost, right, this this creature from her past comes along. And here again, I just I have to go back to what I think is maybe the weakness of the film and to pinpoint it a little bit more. I think it has to do with the character of Hae Sung, with the with the Korean man who comes back into her life um, from her childhood. He is the one that we need to know and understand a little bit more about because he is the more heartbroken one as the movie starts. He's the one who seeks her out um you know, in in adulthood for the first time. And they get drawn into this long distance Skype relationship. But all that we know about him is that he longs for her. And that that doesn't seem quite fair to to him as a character. I just I guess I felt like I needed a little bit more time with him. This the slightness of this movie is part of its beauty and charm. Um, but the slightness can also sometimes work against it a wee bit. And I think that that character could have been better fleshed out. There's an enormous amount of discipline in this movie in that um, not only do you not have the cliched scenes with the, you know, less assimilated, you know, parents or whatever, um, there's there's no sex and there's no fighting, right? Like, there's, like, you, I was like, I came out of the movie, I was like, no one yells, no one raises their voice, no one makes a threat, no one makes a pass, no one expresses longing as a specifically sexual yearning. Uh, there's, it's, a very undomineering movie about people who aren't domineering and prone to outbursts of drama. And I actually came away thinking that was very disciplined. And I think, Sam, one of the ways to make that happen is, you know, Hei Sung has to be drawn in a distant way because he is a symbolic, he hovers between being a symbolic and a real figure for her. And so that's how he's presented in the context of the movie, which is essentially her movie. It's her story. Um, anyway, where'd you come out on that? You know, I do think uh, we're talking about with the character of Hei Sung. I mean, yeah, he is somewhat um, Greta Lee's character, Nora, her sort of attachment to her home country. And, and also the question of like whether or not she actually has that attachment or it's just sort of something she feels like she should be missing. The, the clip we played where you have this sort of almost the way it's put in this movie, this almost like perfectly rom-com ready concept of Inyun, which here is like fate or romantic destiny. Um, and then her being like, yeah, that's just something Korean people say when they're trying to get into somebody's pants. <laughs> but that sort of back and forth with, um, I, I think the first time we see her 12 year old character, she's choosing her English name, Nora for her new life and mm. saying that she wants to go to the U S because she wants to be a famous writer. And that's where all the good prizes are when you're never going to win a Pulitzer if you still live in South Korea. Um, so she's, you know, very enthusiastic about moving forward. But then once she get there, she just thinks about this other thing that she might have had. And it's not that she wants to go back. And there's no sort of, you know, alpha male brawling between the two dudes over which of them is going to end up with her. It's just like, you know, do I really regret this? Am I a person who is always going to be looking at somewhere else, no matter how good where I am is? 
uh, you know, is this just sort of my existential condition to regret things? Am I that kind of person? And I feel like it's it really like speaks to that in a very potent and, and subtle way. But, um, you know, to go back to the word I used before, I mean, I think it's just like a lovely movie and I wouldn't put, you know, greatest of any period of time on it. I would just mm-hmm. um, sort of urge people to go see it and enjoy themselves. Here, here. Let's let's button with that. Please go see it. It's it's really worth it. Uh, the movie is Past Lives. It's in theaters. Uh, Sam, as always, a total pleasure talking to you. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you all. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on all your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend. Hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we discuss business. Dana, what do we have? Steve, the items of business we have this week are twofold. First of all, we want to remind you once again that our annual Summer Strut episode is coming up. For new listeners who might not know about it, every summer we have a show where we ask listeners to help us crowdsource a big playlist on Spotify, the kind of songs you like to listen to when you're out for a summer strut-style walk. If you have ideas to put on the playlist, you can email them to us at culturefest at slate.com. We'll compile a playlist over the next month or so, and then each of us will pick our favorite songs and discuss them on a special Summer Strut episode later this summer with Chris Melanfi, who always comes in and helps us sort through the history and meaning of all of this pop music. Once again, please send your catchy summary songs to culturefest at slate.com. And I forgot to mention this last time, but put Summer Strut in the um, in the subject line when you do so that we immediately know that they go to that Spotify playlist. Our second item of business is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. Because Julie is out, we're having Rebecca Onion, Slate's senior editor, come in to join us for a conversation about therapy speak. We were noticing that multiple articles have been making the rounds lately that talk about how words deriving from the world of therapy, either psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, all different kinds of schools of thought are creeping into everyday life more and more. So you have people online talking about their boundaries and their triggers and self-diagnosing with various disorders. Uh, There was a recent piece in the New York Times by Jessica Gross called Doing the Work and the Obsession with Superficial Self-Improvement. That was the basis for our discussion, but then we started reading more and thinking more about it. It's a big conversation. So we'll talk about that with Rebecca Onion in our Slate Plus segment. If you're a Slate Plus member, please stay tuned for that conversation at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can become one at slate.com slash culture plus. When you're a Slate Plus member, you will get ad-free podcasts, you'll get bonus content like the segment I just described, and you'll get unlimited access to all of the wonderful writing on Slate. Best of all, you'll be supporting our work and the work of all the journalists that we work with. These memberships mean a lot for Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that URL is slate.com slash culture plus. All right, Steve, back to the show. Okay, for the next two segments, we'll be joined uh, by uh, Rick Fop, really close friend of the program, June Thomas. Hey, June. Mr. Stephen Metcalf. So nice to be here. <laughs> Thank you. The proper form of address is appreciated. Uh, you're joining us from Edinburgh. That's that's kind of thrilling, right? What an amazing city. It's it's very lovely. The weather is beautiful. And of course, June is a host of The Working Podcast. And you're working on a book, June, about lesbian spaces. When is that going to be out? It's going to be out in June 2024, inshallah. Inshallah. We're very excited to talk about it when it comes out. But for now... The reality bonanza continues with the ultimatum queer love. The premise, one person is sure, one is unsure, is a fence-sitter or commitment-phobe or some variety of attachment-disordered narcissist. Who's to say? It's reality TV. Anyway, four such couples gather at a resort, then swap partners. They take a quote-unquote trial wife for three weeks, then return to their original partner for another three weeks, and then 
the decision. Get engaged, end the relationship, continue with the trial wife, on and on. Let's listen to a clip. You'll hear one of the couples, Zonder and Vanessa. Zonder wants to get married, but Vanessa wants to continue exploring her options. Here they are talking about the experiment before it begins. It's going to be super weird to see you with anyone else. And obviously, like, I cannot picture you with someone else right now, and I can't picture myself with someone else. But if that opportunity, like, comes and feels natural, let's both feel free enough to explore that. It's so shitty to say, but, but like, let's not hold ourselves back. Like, we thought this experience was a good idea. That's why we're here. Commit to it. I kind of don't want to do this anymore. Let's just be together. I know, but that wouldn't solve anything. You yeah. know, like, that, that brings us right back to where we are right now, where you want to get married and, and I don't. I know, but I don't want to. You're having commitment issues, I think, San. You think so? You know, don't get mad at me if I like someone, right? Oh, man. June, let me start with you. I mean, reality TV always struck me as a oxymoron, you know, like, (laughs) you know, married bachelor or something. And here we are, how many decades into it? And you can still throw people together under highly artificial circumstances, produce an enormous amount of telegenic drama. What do you make of this show? I wish I could give you an answer other than I was so into it. Oh, my God. I loved every minute of it. I was obsessed with it. I could, I dreamt about it. I was just counting the minutes until the final episodes, Eric, so I could find out what the hell had happened. But obviously, it's awful. <laughs> exactly. Dana, what about you? Well, wait, first I have to bounce a question back to June, which I know, June, from prior discussions with you and also from you having talked about this on the Outward podcast, that you are not even normally a reality TV person. So you had a lot to jump over in order to get into the ultimatum colon queer love because it is a very typically structured and, as you observe on that podcast, very typically padded out (laughs) to all hell kind of reality show. So uh, I just want to know a bit more about why this this managed to jump over that fence for you. Well, it's the stuff after the colon, queer love. I mean, Mm. I I was there for that. I was there for the dyke drama. And as we probably will uh, discuss, I actually thought that it was a failure when it came to really kind of grappling with how queer people are different uh, and how their relationships are or can be different. But yeah, it was like a classic situation where I I was seeing my people reflected and I I just, it it grabbed me. And I have to to also just... um, I have to argue with you a little bit. I didn't think it was all that padded out. I mean, I think that is an absolutely righteous complaint about network reality. But other than a little bit of stretching in the um, the picking episode, I never really did know what they called that when they were selecting their trial wives. Um, I, I thought it it actually was moving too fast. I wanted to know a little bit more about what was going on. So I think in that sense, it was like the premise was ridiculous in the way that they have to be for uh, reality shows. But I thought the pacing was atypically sprightly. Yeah, as far as the padding, maybe it's because I haven't watched enough episodes of the show. I think I just felt like they spend a very, very long time establishing who these people are. It was sort of like, I get it. I get their names and their relationships to each other. And there seemed to be a great deal of um, of reestablishment of that. But maybe that becomes necessary later on because of all the switching that starts to happen. I mean, here, it's hard for me to have an opinion because I think I have basically felt the same about every one of these kinds of reality shows I've ever seen. As soon as there's a reality show where people had to audition for the show, presumably, right? There had to be a period where a bunch of different queer couples approached the producers of the show and said, I would like to be on TV and got vetted to make sure that there was, you know, this kind of um, diverse group of people that would do something interesting on TV together. After that, it just, where's the reality? It just felt like a scripted (laughs) show to me in a way, right? I mean, the rules, as you say, June, are so artificial. I know the silliness is part of it, but the idea is supposed to be that these people are testing their relationships, but this is a very self-selected group of people who all want to go on TV and be seen testing their relationships. So I just, I always 
see that behind it. I always right. imagine the, um, the, you know, the moment of audition or the moment of a couple sitting down to dinner saying like, how are we going to prepare for our attempt to get on a reality show to test our relationship? And that artificiality was just really, really hard to get beyond. Uh, I'm curious, Steve, how you felt about that, given that you're <laughs> a bachelorette guy, like in straight form, you have watched this kind of thing season after season. So how does it feel to see this lesbian twist on it? I, I fear I'm here for the wrong reasons, Dana. <laughs> I, I was all in and eating this up greedily with both hands. I mean, I hear your point. I haven't watched a show like this in a long time. And I, at first I thought I'm getting over the hump here going to be tough but for precisely that reason like the selection problem like who would agree to do this and why you always have to my mind a you know especially as the mediums quote unquote matured right it's actually immature it's gotten worse because people now tailor an entire personality around appearing on tv and so it attracts a certain kind of you know narcissistic you know, melodrama addict uh, in some sense, exhibitionistic, on and on. Here, I thought the problem was like weirdly obviated because of yeah. the couple format, right? Because the very problem at the heart of the show is you have one person presumably capable of stability and commitment. And let's just imagine that that person is the least least or less, less likely, at least of the two, uh, to appear on or want to appear on such a show. And then you've got this sort of, you know, slightly sexy, slightly more narcissistic person prone to longing and commitment phobia or whatever, who's more traditionally maybe a, a reality TV exhibitionist. And so you're sort of seeing play out in the internal dynamics of their relationship, you know, kind of something along the lines of the desire to participate or not participate in something like this. One person is just desperate and wants the experiment to result in in marriage. But then that leads to what's interesting, which is as they repair, you're trying to figure out, will, you know, you've got kind of just very broadly speaking, you've got sexy, boring dyads, and then you repair, and then all of a sudden you've got sexy, sexy, boring, boring. And you're like, <laughs> wait a second, that boring, boring couple, like, there's some deep soul Velcro forming there, and like, God, I hope they stay together, right? Each of you can afford to lose this, you know, narcissistic dead weight. You know, you don't need that in your lives. And plus you're looking for comeuppance from, you know, sexy, sexy, or, you know, to whatever. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> I got all in. It was incendiary. It's so fucking sensationalistic. My reptile self was just slithering in joy around the sofa with each new scene. And I was watching it with my kids who were just like, way over the moon for this whole thing it just is it's like what's gonna happen you know next I, I was all in i can't i don't i have nothing but that primitive reaction to it i'm sorry i have two responses to your reaction uh Stephen. and the first of which is i thought that the show's biggest problem was the lack of chemistry like there was very little sexy anywhere like none of the couples either in their original format or in their reconstituted format seemed to have much spark or much you know, just just joy, really. Yeah, and interesting. Then the second part of it was that uh, it's funny. You, what your take on, um, you know, the as you say, the two halves, the the ultimatum giver and the receiver, and how probably the the giver would would just be, you know, unlikely to to reconstitute. Well without giving anything particular away. In fact, it was two of the ultimatum givers, the tops, as somebody put it in, mm -hmm. in the show, who who get closest to to each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it, that was interesting. I hadn't really thought that, well, that, that there's, a, there's, there's an issue uh, in the structure that's, that's going to get in the way because it, it didn't work out that way. And, and that was kind of interesting. I think most people will, especially, you know, because this is... Uh, a queer version would have thought, oh, you know, the mask feminist of it all uh, will kind of get in the way of coupledom. And it's true that, you know, the for the most part, um, you know, the mask femme couples, you know, the, all the femmes found another mask for the most part. So that 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 was an interesting twist that in the end kind of it it, it didn't twist, uh, but that could have been a twist. And just generally, I was kind of a little disappointed by by just how, for all of the queerness of it, it's there in the title, 
they never discuss people's pronouns as far as I could tell. And like, they didn't all use she, her pronouns. And I didn't want like a little teaching. I didn't want an educational session on pronouns. But effectively, at least two of the people were constantly being misgendered or, you know, and so that felt a bit like, well, you say this is queer love, but you're just doing the same. And they're so obsessed with marriage in a way that like, I don't know, it just didn't feel particularly queer to me. I get that marriage like, is about some rights and benefits that you can get. I mean, to me, that's what it's about. Um, but And I get that it's awkward for anyone to have that conversation about what it really means. Um, but uh, yeah, th- there were just some missed opportunities for me that I just wish they could have they could have explored a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, now that you say that, June, I think that that was something that was kind of nagging at me as I was watching and I felt like I am neither queer, nor am I a reality show devotee who's watched a lot of this stuff. So I didn't know exactly how to formulate it, but I think that's it. There's something heteronormative about the mere Mm. existence and format of this show, which is exemplified by the fact that the hostess who, you know, (laughs) as reality hostesses do, just sort of appears in a gown to stiffly say a few words at the beginning of each episode uh, is, is straight. And that's one of the first interactions that the contestants have with her is that they ask, are you gay or are you straight? And it turns out that she's straight which I guess some watchers of the show have objected to. This is not me objecting to it exactly. Just observing that the structure that we're in, right? A straight lady comes and shows you a bunch of gay ladies and then they all pursue the goal of marriage. (laughs) There's not a lot there that's, that's veering outside of, you know, the conventional heteronormative constraints that you would see on any kind of dating reality show, whatever the, the makeup of the contestants may be. I must mention before we end this segment that I was so excited to watch the re- the final episode, which is the reunion episode where they gather together a year after the show was made, um, when everybody has seen the show, they've seen the edits. And there there are things that are revealed in that show that, that kind of took the bloom off the rose. You know, I was treating this as a frothy, fun, like mm. bit of nonsense. And there's there, I w- I'm not going to spoil it. I, I just want people to know, uh, like prepare to be disappointed and aggravated by, by stuff that was that was hidden um, and that really kind of left a bad taste in my mouth about the show. So even though I can't deny all the, all the enthusiasm I had for it, it's dead now, I'm afraid. All right. Well, I guess that's an enticement for me to finish it tonight, (laughs) but um, the show is uh, the ultimatum queer love. It's on Netflix. Uh, June, you're sticking around. Yeah, I am. Excellent. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, why is everyone watching TV with the subtitles on? That's the header for an Atlantic Monthly piece in the June 6th issue. It's by Devin Gordon. It's, a, it's actually a really good piece, really nicely written. Let me, let me quote from it. Now subtitles are everywhere, he writes. In fact, they may already be our default mode. Cites a bunch of statistics, a bunch of people are using them. He goes <laughs> on to say... As it turns out, it's a millennial thing, or at least millennials are leading the way. A full two-thirds of Roku's millennial customers use subtitles. Dana, I uh, I think we all probably have our own uh, intense relationship to this particular habit and subject. What's yours? Well, let me start off with a caveat about what I'm not talking about, because I'm suddenly flashing back to a conversation that we had once at my instigation, I believe, about ebooks mm. and i was talking about my own resistance to reading books in electronic form and why i think ebooks are poorly designed and a bunch of other criticisms of them and 
I think that it was taken by some listeners to mean that no one should use ebooks and they have no purpose or function, which is obviously not the case. And, you know, for many different reasons, including at times disability, that is just the preferred form for people to read in. So I want to make clear that what I'm saying about subtitles or really closed captions is what we're talking about, right? This is not foreign film subtitles. This is mm-hmm. looking at the words in the language that you're already hearing on screen anyway. Um, that that is an important um, accessibility point, that it serves a great purpose, that, for example, when I'm watching with my parents, who are both in their 80s and hard of hearing, we always use the closed captioning, and that's great. I'm just talking about what it is like to read closed captions when you're already hearing and understanding what's on the soundtrack anyway. And to me, that is really a strange, bothersome feeling that takes me out of the experience of what I'm watching and I prefer not to do it. So I'm really interested in this conversation because I don't think I realized how widespread the use of those closed captions is among people who are not using them for disability or language reasons. Uh, But just recently, just this past weekend, as if to contribute to our conversation (laughs) on the podcast, when I knew we were talking about this, uh, we went to visit another family. My family did. And we had a little dinner party together. And then we all watched the movie My Cousin Vinny because the kids (laughs) in the family had never seen My Cousin Vinny. And everybody should see My Cousin Vinny for the sheer purpose of watching Marissa Tomei doing a great breakthrough comic performance in it. And uh, and the movie was great. But we noticed that this family, none of whom is hard of hearing or had, doesn't have English as a first language, uh, just default had the closed captions on. So it obviously felt socially weird to say, oh, thank you for the lovely dinner and inviting us over to watch My Cousin Vinny. But could you please turn off those annoying <laughs> closed captions? So we just watched the movie that way. And the entire time I was thinking about this this conversation to come and just wanting to know from the two of you what I would have wanted to know from them that night, which is why? What does this bring to the experience? Wait, so Stephen, are you a closed caption watcher? So it's on a case-by-case basis. Oh. So using two examples, for much of succession, we had the um, closed captioning on. And... um I think the reason was there's a lot of dialogue and a lot of very precise dialogue. I also have noticed what the article gets into um, in in quite a bit of detail, which is that due to the relationship between, you know, the production technology of the shows and the transmission technology and compression technologies of the streamers, actually audio quality has uh, degraded over the last, I don't know, decade or so. And there are certainly shows. One example is Ted Lasso, especially this season. I feel like I'm missing half the dialogue, hmm. it, it, which turns out is a blessing for this season of Ted Lasso. <laughs> but um, so then this odd added thing happened as I started watching Succession with them, which is it is one way to describe it, Dana, you're right, is a kind of alienation from the material, Right. But it opens up, another way to describe it, it opens up this tiny little gap or a gap, an appreciable gap between the dialogue and the acting as two distinct artistic contributions to the show, right? And to have that little gap open up makes you realize the infinity of choices that the actor faced in that moment to deliver them comes home to you and you see acting as a series of, you know, highly instinctual you know, highly organic choices in the moment. But in a weird way, I kind of loved it. And Succession is such a written show. The idea that it is graphically something on the page, right, to me was actually quite powerful and, um, and drove, you know, the wordiness of it home to me in a way that I think enhanced it. A show like High Maintenance, I would never watch closed captioned. It's so weirdly poetic and, and aural, you know, and, um, you know, uh, cinematic in a way, uh, in painting this mosaic of the, of the borough of Brooklyn that, um, it, it feels so powerfully as though it was never originally on a piece of paper. Um, so anyway, that's where I, that's where I come out on it. June, what about you? I'm curious. Our family is a closed captions on family and has been for Many, many years. I think I learned that in 2012, I wrote a piece for Slate about how I always watch TV with the closed captions on. And it started as a, you know, oh, this this show moves fast. I'm missing things or maybe I'm not getting the accent. Um, But it became a habit. And 
it's very ingrained. And in fact, it's funny that you should be talking about succession because over here, I, I recently moved, or about a year ago, actually, I moved to Britain and I haven't quite figured out the television. Um, and there are various methods of watching and sometimes you get closed captions, sometimes you don't. And for succession, the channel that I was watching it on, I could never, I, believe me, I tried so many times, I could never get captions. Um, and it made me kind of crazy because I really don't like to watch things without the captions. And for me, it's kind of accepting all the benefits that modern life has to offer me. Like in the past, there was no way of rewinding even, uh, because that's sometimes people say, well, if you don't get it, just rewind. Well, yeah, I don't want to keep rewinding my television set. Um, but in the past, that wasn't an option. In the past, you know, dialogue went as fast or as slow as it went. If you missed something, it was like, you know, listening to something in a foreign language. You might not get every word, but you're going to get the sense of it, supposing you speak that language, and you can comprehend. And it used to be that way. But now we have this wonderful gift of closed captions. And, I, I, and so I, I just believe we should take advantage of it. We also for the most part, have bigger screens. So, you know, we're not necessarily getting in the way of anything. Uh, my my closed captions don't cover up any of the, you know, wonderful mise-en-scene, I don't think. And to me, it's like listening to podcasts at 1.5 times speed or more sometimes. Like in the old days, you had to listen to the radio at the speed they, you know, sent it out at. Now, if I want to be more efficient or if, if it suits the format, I can listen faster be able to listen to more shows in the time available to me. And, and why would I not take advantage of that? There are actually some reasons why I wouldn't take advantage of that if it was really beautifully, uh, you know, created. But in general, to me, it's like, you know, it's not hurting anyone. It's not, it's just adding to my experience. Uh, I don't need it, but I like it. Wow, June, I'm really experiencing our difference in real time now because I also cannot stand listening to things at any kind of increased speed. If it even gets to 1.1, I think, why do they sound like Mickey Mouse? You know, it's just, it's the wrong voice. I want to hear the voice as it emerged from the person's mouth. I think maybe I'm just more of an a seeker of of authenticism or something, in, in what, which is or maybe a fetishizer a, of authenticism, perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, maybe I should be able to let go of those things, but I do feel when there are closed captions appearing that the you know the that were not originally intended by the creator that it's blocking part of the screen. It's also changing the timing, frankly. I mean, especially with comedy. It was my daughter who observed this after we had our my cousin Vinny experience at these friends' houses who do the default closed captions. She was saying, well, when you're watching comedy with closed captions, it sometimes anticipates the line, you know? And so the, the timing of the actor is ruined because you already knew what they were going to say. You know, just clearly the closed captions are designed. I mean, this is a good thing for legibility and clarity and not for, you know, necessarily keeping in tune with what the original creator of that movie or TV show intended. And so I just always feel that really intensely when I'm looking at them. I also just simply get distracted by choices like describing the music. You know, I'll get stuck on, well, why are they calling that music muffled when it doesn't sound <laughs> muffled? You know, the things that appear in brackets that describe yep, yep. the incidental sound, hmm. just that really takes me out of it. But a counterpoint, so, like, it only came home to me what a genius Greg Hirsch was as Cousin Greg when I saw some of those lines like as written on the page courtesy of the closed caption and the guy's artistry it's like looking at musical notation of a standard American songbook song while John Coltrane plays you know my favorite thing or whatever you know and just the improvisatory organic you know artistic appropriation of the notation to this other expressive form while hewing to it at the same time, to me, that was amazing. And I, I didn't feel a powerful urge to turn it off. It's interesting to me, Dana, that the example you just gave was with watching a movie, um, because I'm very conscious that when I'm at home and I'm watching the television, I'm, and I rarely watch movies these days, I'm having a home viewing experience. I've only ever been in a movie theater and had closed captions showing. And that was when I accidentally once went to um, an accessibility focused screening um, 
in London one time and, and it wasn't, you know, it was just, just by coincidence. And I actually did find it quite distracting there because it, that that didn't feel right to me. But at this point, I've just become habituated. It's probably been at least 15 years that I've been doing it. And now when I can't, as I said, now here in the in Britain, there are some cases where I just can't figure it out, um, that I, it just feels wrong. And it, it feels like it's a, a habit thing. Like you become accustomed to something and when it's not there, it feels wrong. Or when it is there, in your case, it feels wrong. Um, and, and to me, it the piece that you mentioned in the in the Atlantic, Stephen, mentioned this concept of lazy listening, and I'm a, I'm you know I will hold my hands up to that. It is a crutch for me. Um, you know, it, it, I don't really necessarily read. There are very few times these days when I'm actually counting on it, but it, it's helping me. It's assisting me, and I feel a bit deprived when it's not there for me. Okay. Well, the piece in The Atlantic, as I said, it's called Why Is Everyone Watching TV with the Subtitles On by Devin Gordon. It's really delightful to read it, and it's filled with very interesting info about degraded audio on and on. Anyway, uh, check it out. It's in The Atlantic. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. What do you do? On, off, uh, shoot us an email. All right, let's move on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Dana, what, uh, what do you have this week? Stephen, my endorsement actually comes out of our Plus segment this week. So uh, if you're not a Slate Plus member, this will not have context. But we're going to be talking in Slate Plus about therapy speak and the sort of online rise of the the language of therapy in everyday life, whether whether that's annoying or inappropriate or, you know, something that is much needed in our very um, mentally unwell culture. And in order to sort of forestall <laughs> the idea that we are here just to to kick therapy around, um, I wanted to endorse and actually I think a really good self help book, uh, which I listened to on audiobook during the height of the pandemic when everybody was mentally unwell. And I'm not sure how it, I came across it. I think because I follow the author on Twitter. Her name is Kathleen Smith, and she's a family systems therapist who just has a very nice, sensible, no nonsense, sort of um, generous way of of talking about mental health and family relationships. And so I thought, hey, I'll give her book a try. It's a very short five and a half hour audio book. It's read in part by her, Kathleen Smith, and it's called Everything Isn't Terrible. And the subtitle is Conquer Your Insecurities, Interrupt Your Anxiety, and Finally Calm Down. I really liked this because it has a very intimate conversational tone. It doesn't feel like um, bullet pointed therapy speak or sort of, you know, like a business self-help manual. It actually feels like a specific writer with a specific voice talking to you. It's a little bit like a, a five and a half hour therapy session where you don't have to say anything. You can just listen to Kathleen Smith. Um, and since then, I started reading her newsletter and I just think she's a really wonderful writer on mental health and relationships, but a good place to start and just a nice calming thing to listen to as you go about your day is Everything Isn't Terrible by Kathleen Smith, and uh, it's on Audible. Oh, wow. Um, June, what do you have? Well, mine is also an audiobook, and I have to admit that it's something that I haven't fully consumed yet because I am so excited about it that I am kind of serving it to myself in, in little drips so that I can make it last. I'm really like titrating my experience, and it is the Audible version of Alison Bechtel's Dykes to Watch Out For. Um it, it is done with a full cast that includes Carrie Brownstein as Mo and uh, Roberta Calindras as Lois and Roxane Gay is in it and um, Jane Lynch is the narrator. There are some amazing actors uh, and the, the sort of miraculous thing about it is just the way that it has brought to life something that I know so well but that I feel like I'm seeing in a different way. Um, Part of that is down to the fact that the really beautifully written comic strip has been taken and kind of used as the source material, but then it's been, a book has been written, as you might say, in, in the Broadway sense by Madeline George, who is also, the I would say, one of the big reasons that the great Hulu show uh, Only Murders in the Building is so good. She is the mm. showrunner of that um, and a writer. And it's just amazing. Uh, I, I've been looking forward to it for a long time. It's just so good. Yeah, I'm just in awe. 
June, that's amazing. I, I, the minute you mentioned it, because I was on Audible anyway, having just recommended a book there, I looked this up and it just came out, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. brand new as of a couple of weeks ago. And the yep. first thing I was going to say when you mentioned it is, well, how would you turn Dykes to Watch Out for a graphic, you know, a comic series into audio? So the idea of of kind of adapting it to, yeah. as an acting piece is really wonderful. And look at the voices that are in it. My I Lord. Know. Okay, this is going to be my next Audible download. So thank yeah. you. And I just want to warn people, like the initial setup, like the kind of, hey, you're listening to Jane Lynch is a little bit over the top. And at first I was like, oh my God, what is this? But it it's just like, it's a little shock. And then it's like, like don't, don't, don't give up in the first like 10 seconds. Settle in. It's going to get amazing. Uh, maybe I was the only person who had that response. But I shouldn't have. It's it's so lovely. What about you, Stephen? All right. Well, I finally read a book that was recommended to me ages ago. It's um, by uh, primarily he was known as a poet, the Russian poet Lermontov, widely considered to be the second greatest Russian poet of all time after Pushkin. Uh, he wrote a novel um, called A Hero of Our Time, and it was written in 1839. So very late in the Romantic movement, Byron had been dead for about 15 years and this sort of Byronic type had overtaken Europe. I mean, like kind of like Elvis in America in the 50s or something. <laughs> I mean, there was this, you know, young men striving to imitate him. And this is an expression of Byronism as it reaches Russian sh shores and gets assimilated into the wild involutions of the Russian character in some sense. And... The novel was hugely influential on Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. I mean, they all eventually read it. Um, and it's this exploration of a nihilistic anti-hero and his sort of misadventures. And it's short and one of the most eminently page-turning readable books I've ever read. I mean, it's just filled with like intrigue, sex, violence, the nature writing is, it's not a surprise that it was written by a poet. They're just these rhapsodic stretches, um, you know, invoking the natural world in the Caucasus and out on the steppe. Um, they're extraordinary, but it's really sort of, it, it, you see how it played into Dostoevsky, um, in the most direct way. And that it's sort of exploring, this fl flirtation with godlessness of modern life on the part of a young man who just feels as though he, all he can do is waste his life in some ways. He's a superfluous human being with an overabundance of consciousness and no place to put his actually quite considerable abilities. And it, it just has this weird element of sadism to it. It is one of the strangest, most gripping little books I've ever read, Hero of Our Time by Lermontov. It's in a great Penguin edition. Uh, if you can find it, uh, check it out. I hope you're ready for all the Anna Akhmatova stands to come after you after that very bold statement you made at the beginning of that endorsement. A uh, really, really good catch. Let's say pre-20th century, venerable, dead, great white male Russian poets. Lermontov comes in at number two of the bullet behind <laughs> Pushkin. But uh, Akhmatova is like the great Russian poet of the 20th century, no doubt. June, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really fun. Thank you for having me. And uh, hi to Dan, who said hello to me in the Sainsbury's in Stockbridge, who's a Culture Gab Fest listener. Did he voice recognize you? He did. I was behind him in a line complaining about jammy dodgers, and he heard me. <laughs> That's so delicious. Ah, Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Fun time. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For June Thomas, Sam Adams, Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.